Amen. Well, last week, Pastor Eric opened us up a new series on revival and renewal. It's something that we all want, all desire is to be renewed in Christ. It's something that we all need at different points in our lives and different depths is to be renewed in Christ. And we'll see today that repentance is that first step toward revival and renewal as we deal biblically with sin. It's a hard step. It's that first step toward renewing ourselves spiritually as we, as we allow the Lord, rather, to renew us. Years ago, I allowed sin in my life to affect me. I was hurt by someone, somebody that I loved and cared for and respected. I allowed this hurt to turn to anger. Pretty soon that anger turned to bitterness. Instead of dealing with it in a biblical way of forgiving, I began talking to others. God began to deal with me. But I resisted him. I became depressed. I literally remember some evenings I could go to bed at 7.30 at night. I was so tired. I'd wake up the next morning exhausted. I had no life. I was reminded of Psalm 32 and 38 where, where the psalmist says, I, there's no life in me. I was just gone. As God sought to deal with me, I'd rationalize my sin. And I'd point my finger at this individual. And I'd say, but God, look. Look what he's done. He hurt me so much, God. And he's hurt others too. But God gently, very gently, said, Ralph, you deal with your sin. I'll take care of him. But I was afraid that he'd get away. And so I kept on struggling. Finally, it's as if God said, Ralph, you got your finger pointing at him, but you got several more pointing back at you. And finally, I reached a point where I said, God, you're right. You're right. And I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you with this person, and I'm going to acknowledge my sinfulness. And there was life that returned, there was joy that I've forgotten about as I repented of my sin. A joy that's beyond understanding. Well, today, let's look in our Bible at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses first 8 through 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. And we see in this passage the Apostle Paul dealing with some personal issues regarding his feelings, his own attitudes, and his relationships to the Corinthian church. And in his case, he wasn't sinning, but the church had sinned against him. Conflict. Eh, if it wasn't for people, life might be okay, right? 
We struggle with, with relationships. We struggle with conflict. It's a part of life. And it's so important that we learn to deal with these issues. Paul got depressed, we'll see. Paul was depressed. I love the message for, the, for verses 5 and 6 prior to this. Paul says, when we arrived in Macedonia, we couldn't settle down. The fights in the church and the fears in our hearts kept us on pins and needles. We couldn't relax because, because we didn't know how to turn out. The New American Standard Bible says, But God, who comforts the depressed, comforts us by the coming of Titus. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforts us by the coming of Titus, who brought back a response. The complex in the church had led Paul literally to be on pins and needles. And led him also, as he struggled because he loved the church, to being depressed. Paul had planted this church in Corinth. And he moved on to other areas to share the good news. And possibly, we're not sure, different people have different views, possibly a false teacher came in and began teaching false doctrine, even confronted him. Others believed that it was someone who was involved in teaching sexual immorality, um, possibly involved in an ongoing sexual and cultic uh, involvement from the people. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21, Paul writes, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of, of those who have sinned earlier and have not repented of impurity, of sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Paul was saddened. This false teacher, if it were a false teacher, he was saddened because the congregation was looking to someone else to teach him. And this false teacher was leading them astray. And because of this division, he was no longer able to lead the church and guide them in God's Word. And of course, if it was immorality, he knew that that ongoing sin destroys the life of the church. He had written a severe letter, which he mentions, and sent Titus to deliver it. And as he waited for his response, Paul struggled with depression. You see, broken relationships cause pain. It can be in a marriage, it can be parents to, to children. It can be work relationships. Paul had a deep love for the people that are in the Corinthian church. And he was so excited when he got word that they had repented. In verses 8 through 11, Paul talks about this severe letter and, and their response to it. He knew his letter had been hard. His letter had been harsh on sin. That's why it's called the severe letter. He had to confront them. He regretted it for a short time. You know, sometimes we as parents, as we deal with our children, we, we hate to discipline. But we know that discipline is necessary. We know that children who grow up without discipline 
grew up to be adults that don't have control. Paul, in the same way, loved this church. They were his spiritual children, and he wanted them to grow up to be godly men and women. He disciplined them out of love, hoping that they would repent and that change would take place. Sometimes I think we lose sight of who God is and we focus on His love alone and not His other attributes. Did Jesus say in Revelation 3.19, Those whom I love, I'll pamper or cuddle? No, He didn't. He said, Those whom I love, I rebuke, I discipline. So be zealous and repent. It's clear that Paul regretted for a short time writing the letter until he, until he got the word. He wasn't glad that he had heard them, but he was glad that they had repented. He was glad that the letter caused that sorrow that led to repentance. Verse 9 says, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting goes on, for you thought a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss to us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The congregation was grieved in such a way that led to repentance. What's the results of godly sorrow? Well, the characteristics of of godly sorrow is first it brings and produces repentance well what is repentance what is repentance and we have different ideas about what repentance is repentance is seeing our sin as God sees it it is a change of direction because of a change in our hearts and minds let me repeat that Repentance is a change in direction because of a change in our hearts and minds. How many of us have felt regret? We've cried, but not been repentant. It's easy to cry as we struggle with guilt, as we struggle with ongoing conflict and sin. But it's not easy necessarily to repent. True repentance, again, is that first step in all change. I know many times over the years, we as elders have had to confront individuals because of a sinful lifestyle. It's never easy for us. It's never, never easy. We do it out of love, the desire to see change, repentance. We do it to protect the body of Christ. A change of heart must always produce a change in direction. A change in direction. Godly sorrow produces change. And it's evident that repentance has occurred. Repentance really involves the mind 
the emotions, and the will. And the mind, because the things we once looked upon as good, we see now as repulsive. It involves emotions because those deep feelings of grief over sin, the sense of shame and failure, are there. And thirdly, it involves the will because we choose, we choose to live differently as we yield to the Lord. Well, not only does godly sorrow lead to repentance, produce repentance, it leads to salvation. Verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. It leads to salvation. The fact is that the fact that the Corinthian church repented in a biblical way showed that they were believers. It was evidence that they are believers. Paul clearly, completely connects repentance and salvation here. God's word is clear. You look back to the early, early church that it's, they gave out the gospel there to repent. Acts two thirty eight, Peter says, "Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins." In Mark six twelve, the disciples went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And yet we know, we know that we may find ourselves as believers in need of repenting, as our spiritual lives become dull and dry as we deal with conflict, as we deal with various stress and pressures in life. We think back to, if you've read the book of Revelation, where Jesus goes and confronts the seven shepherds of the seven churches. Four out of the seven were called to repent. Four out of seven. He says to Ephesus, he says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do good works that you did at first. To another church, he says, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, and patient endurance. But I have this against you, that you tolerate Jezebel, who is teaching and seducing believers into sexual immorality. So we see that, yes, Repentance begins salvation, but as believers, we repent throughout our lives. In verse 10, we see that godly sorrow leads to no regrets. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Well, what does this mean? Does this mean that when I repent, that I won't face any of the consequences, that I won't deal with any of these struggles and issues that I that I had as I struggled with that? No. I think that, I think Paul was saying, I don't regret turning to God. No one ever regrets repenting. I think of King David. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he had had her husband killed in battle to cover up the sin? Repentance didn't mean that David no longer remembered or felt grief over that. He was still sorry, I'm sure, of his loss of his son that died as a result of the sin. No regret. When we repent, when we turn 
to God in repentance. There's no regret. We'll always be glad that we obey God, that we are obedient to His Word. No one truly repents will ever regret it. I think we can all identify with, with King David. I mentioned him. Psalm 51 probably is a passage that we've all read over and over. I go to it when I'm struggling with sin. It's a good model for us to look at. David says, Have mercy on me, God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my pain, from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. I like what John MacArthur said. He says that in this passage, that as David pleads to God, he pleaded about four things. An example for us. First, sin had made Paul dirty. He wanted to be clean. Sin had made Paul dirty. He wanted to be clean. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Purge me, and I'll be clean. Secondly, guilt had made him ill, and he wanted to be healed. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Psalm 38, another um, passage, very similar. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. Third, is Paul uh, is a... Uh, David cried out to God. Disobedience had broken that fellowship, that friendship with God, and he wanted it restored. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And finally, as David was talking with God, pleading with God. Rebellion had put him under judgment. He wanted to be pardoned. He wanted to be pardoned. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David recognized his sin. He recognized that he deserved judgment. He recognized it produced guilt because he felt it. He takes full responsibility for his sin. He doesn't blame Bathsheba. He didn't say, you know, God, Bathsheba knew that I could see. She did that on He didn't say that. He just said, I have sinned. I have sinned. He didn't, he took full response. He blamed no one. He blamed no one. He acknowledges God's holiness, his goodness, his forgiveness, his faithfulness in our lives. He understood himself well. He says he was born a sinner. 
where we've seen the characteristics of godly sorrow. Let's look at worldly sorrow. Verse 10 says, worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief produces death. The sorrow of the world is wounded pride and self-pity. There are a lot of sorry people in the world. I don't mean that they're sorry in the sense that they're no good. They're sorry that they got caught in sin, or they're sorry. They're not repentant. They're just, they're sorry. They're sorry. They may cry. They may cry a lot. But it's not repentance because there's no change in their lives. The sorrow of the world produces guilt and shame and despair and depression, hopelessness and death. It leads to resentment and anguish. And sometimes it leads to suicide. That mental torment, that anguish of guilt that affects us spiritually and physically. Over the past 28 years, as I've been involved in ministry, I've seen many who've had godly grief. And I've seen God change their lives. I've seen them change from being hopeless to filled with joy. Not that there weren't still issues to deal with, but there was joy and excitement about what God was doing in their lives. You know, other times I've witnessed individuals who remained hard. They may say the right things, but again, no change. It hurts. It hurts to see people choose this direction, often blaming others, not choosing to take responsibility for their own sin, often to be that defensiveness and anger. Judas is another example of someone who had deep sorrow. He was sorry he turned Christ over for the 30 pieces of silver. He says, as he turned the money back over to the priest, he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He departed. He hanged himself. He was sorry. He wasn't repentant. Saul, King Saul, another individual. If you think back to the Old Testament book of First Samuel, chapter 15, God had called on Samuel to anoint Saul. And as he anointed him king over Israel, he says, now listen, now listen, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus said the Lord, go and strike the Amalekites. Devote destruction, uh, to destruction all. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, and camel and donkey. And what does Saul do? He comes back and he says, I've been on a mission for God. And he brings back the king. And he brings back a lot of booty, a lot of things, supposedly to sacrifice for God. And Samuel's response was, God delights in obedience more than in burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then he tells him, the Lord has rejected him as king. Well, we've seen two types of sorrow. Godly 
and worldly. Let's look at evidence of repentance in our lives. Verse 11 says, Paul says, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you approved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Well, the evidences of repentance in our lives, in the lives here of the Corinthians. First thing is regret, and grief. The word grief there is greatly distressed over their sin. For I see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Eager to clear your name. What indignation. What fear. If we're repentant, truly repentant, we'll feel that grief and shame for our sins. Isaiah, in chapter 6, that passage we're so aware of, as he was in God's presence and sensing God's holiness, said, Woe is me. And Luke, Peter says to Christ, Depart from me, from a sinful man. In Revelation 1:17, John saw the Lord, and he says that he fell at his feet as though dead. Contact with God produces a sense of unworthiness in his presence. Not only does repentance produce real grief and, and, and regret, but there's an absence of rationalization. There's an absence of rationalization for sin. There's no victim. There's no, but my parents did this to me, or my spouse acts this way, or my boss does this. No rationalization. It's just me, God. I, I am responsible. I have done it. Third is repulsion. Indignation is the word used there. They were disgusted. They were disgusted with themselves and with their sin. Disgusted for offending Paul and for sinning against God. They now hate the sin that they once loved. They hate the sin they once loved. Cherished even. And fourth, a sure thing repentance has occurred is when there's restitution. Restitution. A readiness to see justice done. Eager to clear your name. Probably most of us remember Zacchaeus. He's the little short guy that climbed up in the tree that we used to sing about as kids. He climbed up in a tree to get Jesus' attention. And this crooked tax collector, when he repented of his sin to God, said to him, I'll give half of my wealth to the poor. And if I've cheated people, I will give them back four times as much. When we truly repent and get right with God, we want to be right with the people that we've hurt, with everybody else. Over the past 28 years, I myself have struggled off and on with being biblical 
as I deal with issues in my life, with attitude and heart. It's easy for us to hold on to things. I've also seen people claim to be right with God and follow through with unbiblical divorce. I've seen people, and I'm not talking about hearing good news, but in other churches I've been associated with, I've seen people divorce their spouses and marry somebody else and head over to another church and begin leading in that church. I've seen people seek to divide churches through destructive gossip and then head off to another church. Real repentance results in restitution. We're not right with God until we're right with the people we've offended. Real repentance results in restitution. Two things about repentance. One, there be confession of sin vertically to God. And secondly, horizontally, there be restitution. Restitution can cause fear. I can tell you for myself at times when I've gone to people, I've been afraid. And I say, what if they reject me, God? What if they don't accept it? What if they don't forgive me? But always, always, it's best to repent, to go and share. Finally, there's renewal. When we repent, there's this new life within us as we turn back to God. Verse 11 says, What fear, what fear of God, what longing, what zeal. We turn from guilt and shame to life, into joy, into excitement as we trust the Lord. In verse 12, <clears throat> and following, we see the value of godly confrontation. Paul says, by all this, we're encouraged. He's glad he got that letter. He's glad that they responded well. He says, in addition to our encouragement, we're especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit had been refreshed by all of you. I boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But with everything we have said to you was true. And so our boasting about you to Titus have proved to be true as well. Well, what is the ultimate value of Confrontation is we have to face that in life. First, it reveals who our friends are. It reveals who our true friends are. Because see, a true friend loves us enough to come in a loving way and confront. I think sometimes godly confrontation is almost non-existent in our lives. Paul says that the real reason for his harsh letter is not to finger the bad guy or is not to vindicate the victim himself, but rather to have the congregation see that Paul was looking out for them. He cared for them. He sent them this severe letter, a letter that was hard to write and yet and harsh on sin. But yet it's a letter that he sent because he loved them. 
He was their friend. He cared for them. And they didn't realize it. They trusted this other guy. Sometimes we don't know who our true friends are. Sometimes we deal with families and situations. Sometimes we think a family member is our friend when they let things slide. Sometimes we think our best friend really loves us when they don't confront us. And in, in, in teens, I know that sometimes you think that your parents are really kind of out of it. And they're so old-fashioned in wanting you to live by God's Word in a certain way. And sometimes it's easy to think maybe that your friends care more than your parents. But I don't think that's the case. Parents love their children and want the best. And church family, please know that when there's confrontation, when there's dealing with sin... As far as the elders, we love you. We love you. We long to see you be the men and women that God wants you to be. And we know if there's sin in your life or in my life or the elders' lives, we know that we, we can't grow. We know if there's sin in your church, that it hurts. We know that sexual immorality destroys churches. confrontation reveals who our true friends are. It also vindicates trust that we put in others. Here Paul says in verse 13, Therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Whatever boast I made to him about you I was not put to shame. He says, I've been boasting to Titus about you, and you didn't put me to shame. He said, but just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. A third thing that confrontation does is it increases the love between believers. It increases that love between believers. Verse 15, and his affection for you is even greater. His affection, to my Titus for the Corinthians, his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all and how you received him with fear and with trembling. And I rejoice, rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. Repentance. Necessary first step. Confrontation. Always hard. But always, if there's sin, necessary. Well, let's think about this for our own lives. I want us to think in two different ways. We need to be willing to cause godly sorrow. We need to be willing to confront. We don't confront in anger. We don't confront in a proud way. We confront 
with fear and trembling, but we confront. Are you and I willing to help our brother or sister recognize their sin? When Paul wrote to Second Corinthians, or rather, when he wrote Second Corinthians, it cost him tremendous discomfort. If you remember, I said he was depressed. He was on pins and needles because he loved the church so much. We risk being rejected. We risk being criticized when we care enough for someone to confront. Luke 17, 3 and 4 says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. First, we need to be willing to confront in love. And secondly, we need to be willing to accept a rebuke. If someone comes to us and says, Brother, sister, is this true? Is this happening in your life? Did this take place? How will we respond? Would you or would I bristle in self-defense? It'd be easy for us, right, to start pointing fingers like I did. It's easy. But remember, when we point fingers, it's a joke in the, in the office. When, we got, when I point my finger, I got three back at me. It's easy to point fingers. And yet, there's a repentance. A repentance that leads to salvation and to life. With no regret. With no regret. We all struggle with life. It's easy to become dull and dry. And yet God wants to renew us as we turn to Him. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we need You. Father, our tendency is to be hard. Our tendency is to point fingers. Our tendency is to hang on to sin. And Father, too often our tendency is like the example that I used earlier of my own life. Instead of repenting to become angry and bitter with gossip. Father, we all struggle with that. I, I know. I just know we do. Some much more than others. Some not so much. Oh, Father, we long to be a church that lives for you. We long to be a church made up of individuals who are Christ-like, who are maturing. And, Father, it doesn't happen except for you interacting in our lives through your spirit and word and, and your people. And so we pray, Father, that you would work your work in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. What is all